Good afternoon, and welcome to today's town hall forum, originating here from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister with this congregation and moderator of these forums, which are conducted seven times a year. Our persistent objective is to host people, voices of conscience, that they might address in our hearing critical ethical issues facing our world. Our guest today is Elie Wiesel, survivor of the World War II Holocaust, chronicler of that Holocaust, writer, thinker, speaker, fused to the Holocaust. He is author of some 15 books related one way or another to that experience. He is currently Andrew Mellon Professor of Humanities at Boston University. When interviewed several years ago, Mr. Wiesel said with reference to the Holocaust, it must be seen as a special event, meaning a special event which requires a special style a special approach, a special level, a special sensitivity, a special tone of voice. When we speak of anything related to the subject, a certain trembling goes through us. It must not become simply a subject among other subjects." End of quote. And that is precisely the way we feel about Mr. Wiesel's visit here today. You, sir, have a message for us and we look forward in keen and quiet anticipation to how you choose to share it with us today. The best thing one can do at noon on a Thursday is to tell stories. I admire you for what you are doing here, Reverend Meisel, to break up the day in so many people's lives and bring them out of doors, out of their offices, out of their pain, out of their anguish, or out of their futile, futile endeavors, and say, come and meditate together with us for one hour. I wish it would be imitated all over the world. Simply to stop for an hour and think. Don't listen, share. All I do is I receive and in receiving is a secret. I have received many stories. I shall share them with you. One of them is a Hasidic story which was handed down from generation to generation and with your permission I will read it to you because it is relevant to our subject. It's a marvelous, simple, almost childish story. I quote, and it came to pass that when the great master, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, saw misfortune and hate threatening the Jews, it was his custom to go into a certain part of the forest to meditate. And there he would light a fire, say a special prayer, and the miracle would be accomplished. And the hate, disarmed, and misfortune averted. Later, when his disciple, the celebrated Magid or, or preacher of Mezerich, had occasion for the same reason to intercede with heaven, he would go to the same place in the forest and say, Master of the universe, listen, I do not know how to light the fire, but I am still able to say the prayer. And again, hate would be disarmed, misfortune averted, and the miracle would be accomplished. Still later, his disciple, Rabbi Moshe Leib of Sasov, in order to save his people once more, would go into the forest and say, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I do not know the prayer, but I know the place in the forest, and this must be sufficient. It was sufficient and the miracle was accomplished. And then it fell on his friend and disciple, Rabbi Israel of Rijin, to overcome misfortune. 
Once again there was hate being accumulated against his people and once again there were perils threatening his people. Once again there was so much danger that he felt close to despair and he had to do something. So sitting in his armchair, his head in his hands, he spoke to God. Master of the universe, I am unable to light the fire and I do not know the prayer. I cannot even find the place in the forest. All I can do is tell the story and this must be sufficient. And legend has it that indeed it was sufficient. I'm a teacher. That is my passion. I like to teach. And from time to time we take a story, any story, biblical, Talmudic, Hasidic or ancient stories from ancient texts and we spend a week or a month or a semester with my students exploring the hidden meanings, the layers upon layers that have gathered and accumulated there ready for the one person or the one group to discover those layers or the link between the layers. And this is the most beautiful adventure that a teacher and a student can face to have a text and uncover it and make it more human, make it more accessible. This story could serve for us as such a, a laboratory on many, many levels. What is the meaning of the story? That the first was greater and the second less great? Or just the opposite? that the first master had to do so many things to accomplish a miracle, while the later one, the latest, had to do almost nothing, simply to tell a story. But you know, storytelling is a miracle in itself. But really, from our viewpoint, what this story teaches us is, here you have four masters who have to save four generations of Jews. The masters changed, the generations changed, the methods changed. What didn't change? The hate. And the question is why? Why hate? Which is the title that you have given me and for which I thank you. Why hate? What is it in people that make them hate other people? Why do so many people indulge in something so self-destructive, so futile, because it is futile, as hate? Why? Why do the poor hate the rich? Why do the rich hate one another? Why do nations hate other nations? Why do brothers hate brothers? For years and years I have tried to discover an answer and I confess to you I haven't. I don't know the answer. In fact, last year I was in France and I have proposed to the President of France, who is a friend of mine, François Mitterrand, to organize an international summit conference to deal with this problem, to bring together the greatest experts in the world, psychiatrists and sociologists, and theologians and preachers, and professors of philosophy and social sciences and see what is happening. Why? Why do people hate? Camus, at the end of The Plague, I'm sure you remember his novel, The Plague, such a symbolic novel. At the end of The Plague, the hero of his book, Dr. Rieu, writes the following. Having survived death, having survived the death of so many of his friends and adversaries, now at the end of the story, somewhere in Algeria, he listened to the cries of joy rising from the town and he remembered, and I quote, that such joy is always imperiled. He knew that what those jubilant crowds didn't know but could have learned from books that the plague never dies, 
that the plague never disappears for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chests, that it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks and bookshelves, and that perhaps the day would come when for the bane and the enlightening of man it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. Camus too believed that the plague, which is a result of hate, the plague, the novel is actually a symbol of hate, of war, doesn't die. Death doesn't die. We die. And only when, as we believe, the Messiah would come, only then would death die. Now that is being a vehicle. It's being a messenger. It is being it is an instrument in the hands of so many other people. And the question is when and how could we stop all that? I come from a people that has been a victim of hate for many, many centuries. I hope you will understand the spirit in which I'm saying this. I'm saying it not to justify hate, surely not to arouse hate, but rather to oppose it. I believe it can be opposed, but it has to be unmasked. My people has been a victim of hate for almost 2,000 years. And therefore, Maybe it is appropriate for you, Dr. Meisel, to have me speak to you, or me or anyone in my place who had come from my background. For we have seen what hate offers. We have seen what hate does. We have seen what hate does to the hater, but also to the victim of hate. I tell you something which may hurt you. To me, to be with you is a little bit unreal. It's unreal because I come from that background. I was a pious, religious Jew. And in my childhood, there was a total barrier between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. And it was probably willed that way on both sides. I never entered a church there, but then no one would have invited me inside. To you, the cross is a symbol of love and compassion. To my people, for so many centuries, it was a symbol of the opposite, of violence. We suffered on account of that cross. And therefore, it is so important to bring us together and speak about these things, because after all, this is my firm belief, we are all children of the same father. And if hate until now has threatened only my people or other minorities, now it is no longer the case. Now hate is the real menace, the real threat to the whole world. The next war, should there be one, and we must do whatever we can to avoid it, the next war will not end Jewish history. If we let it happen, it will end history. And therefore, the only way to save humanity is to try and save it together. The first time we encounter hate in our common history is with Cain and Abel. When I study, as surely you do, the chapter of Cain and Abel in Genesis, I'm always frightened. Remember, the first death in history is a murder. Adam was still alive, Eve was still alive, 
Cain and Abel gave us the example of the first death, and it was a murder. The first case of murder involved two brothers. Cain and Abel were brothers. Is it possible, therefore, to think that brothers could become one another's victim and killer? It is. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he hated him. Why did he hate him? Because Abel was favored by God and Cain became jealous. But you know, when I study the text, my first impulse is in favor of Cain. He was right to be angry. God was wrong. Why did God favor Abel? Furthermore, when you study the text carefully, you will see that at one point when God rejected A Cain's offering, it was Cain's idea, by the way, not Abel's. It was Cain's idea to give offerings to God, and Abel stole it from him. And God then proved to be a master of occasional discrimination and discriminated against the youngest, which is often the case. So Cain was angry, and the text tells us something very beautiful, that Cain spoke to Abel. But we don't know what he said to him. All we know is that he spoke to him. And because we don't know what he said to him, we surmise that Abel didn't listen. Now, why didn't he listen? There were two men in the world, only two, and they were brothers. And Cain was suffering. The expression is by Iplupanaf, that his face was down, upset, depressed. He spoke to his brother, he wanted to tell him, my brother, look what is happening to me, look what God is doing to me. And Abel didn't listen. Why shouldn't Cain be angry? I couldn't, of course, remain Cain's friend to the end. How could one? We must be on the side of the victim, not of the killer. Cain, do you remember what he did after he killed? After he had killed, he had chosen for himself a profession. And the profession was Bone Arim. He became an urban builder. Anyone who lives in big cities knows that Cain's profession stayed with him and he with it and with us for so many centuries. But why did I leave Cain? In brief, I'll tell you why. If Cain was angry with God, why did Abel have to pay the price? It wasn't Abel's doing, it was God's doing. If Cain is angry, all right, tell God whatever you want. But what do you want from your poor brother? He killed him. And that's why Cain rem remains in our history as the archetype of the killer. Let me give you another biblical example which touches me more deeply, no, as deeply as Cain and Abel, but more personally. Surely you have read the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a marvelous book because it's a book about a miracle. One day the Jews of Sus were threatened with extermination and then a beautiful girl came up and she saved them. Great. But think back. What is the book about? In the beginning you have an old king who is bored and therefore he organizes parties. And one day he had this outlandish idea to entertain his guests. And how would he entertain them? He would give them the best he has. The spectacle of his wife naked. And Vashti, his wife, said no. The first case of liberalism And if ever I was for feminine liberation, it was because of Vashti. My sympathies go to Vashti, to this great woman who dared to say no to the king. And she was punished for that. You remember the story. So the whole story begins 
with a silly incident between a husband and a wife and a party. And suddenly, out of the blue, the Jews are threatened. The Jews had nothing to do with it. Vashti wasn't Jewish. Neither was the king. Nobody there. It had to do with the silliness of an old, bored king and the proud woman. But the Jews were threatened. Because we have learned, we Jews, that somehow we are involved. Whatever happens in the world, we are involved. Let me give you an example. The Crusaders went to Jerusalem to save their holy sites from the Muslims. But on the way, they killed Jews. They arrived in Jerusalem, they killed Jews. Why? They had nothing to do with it. Another example. Karl Marx was a despicable anti-Semite. He had a friend, a sociologist, a friend, an enemy friend, called Proudhon. They had absolutely nothing in common. They fought each other all the time. If Marx wrote a book called The Philosophy of Misery, Proudhon countered with a pamphlet called The Misery of Philosophy. <laughs> there wasn't a point on which they could agree, except both of them hated Jews. Why? When I studied the Hasidic movement from which I read, actually, the first story, I studied well again the 18th century, enlightenment, emancipation, the great philosophers, the great scholars, the great moralists, the Voltaires, the Kants. And what shook me up was when I discovered that most of them, with very few exceptions, had anti-Semitic tendencies. Now, how could they be friends of humanity and at the same time enemies of the Jewish people? Aren't we part of humanity? It came, of course, to the culmination, which was an aberration in history, in our own lifetime. I don't know how to describe it. To this day, I don't understand it. I don't have the words for it. And suddenly, or was it suddenly, a person, and then a group, and then many groups, either decided or agreed to wipe out a whole people. And day after day, they would simply kill. At one point, they would kill 10,000 men, women, and children in one place alone. Why? Why the children? Why the weak? Why the sages? Why their disciples? I don't know. But it went on. I remember when I arrived there, late at night, I was very young, I didn't believe what I saw, and all that went through my mind was, what does it mean? All these thousands and thousands of people who had been brought there that very night from all over Europe, from the darkest corners of exile, and the flames, and the killers killed, and the victims died. What did it mean? It had to mean something. At one point I felt perhaps it meant that Jewish history had come to an end. Then I thought, as in hallucination, maybe it meant something else. Maybe the Messiah had come. If so many people speaking so many languages, from so many backgrounds, gather together in this place, maybe, maybe it is a Messiah, a kind of strange Messiah. What does it mean? I still don't know what it means. I know certain things, small things. I know that it began with words. I know that it began with a few people 
and I know that it had to do with the indifference of the world. What hurt us, what still hurts me, is not so much the hate of the enemy. In a way, I expected that the enemy of the Jewish people, who is the enemy of mankind, hates us all. But that so many others, who were not enemies, were indifferent to that hate and to the consequences, that's what hurt me. When after the war I discovered that everything was known. In my little town in Hungary in 1944, two months before D-Day, Normandy, we had never heard the name Auschwitz, because nobody cared to tell us. We could have escaped. You know, Eichmann, when he came to Hungary to supervise the last operation, he took 600,000 Jews in six weeks and shipped them to their death. The Russians were 20, 30 kilometers away. We could have escaped into the mountains and wait. But we didn't know. Why not? How come that in Stockholm and Switzerland and Washington and Rome, in the Vatican, everybody knew, now it's clear, we read the text, it's there. Once I sat with President Carter, and he gave me a few pictures that by accident an American pilot has taken while bombing a factory near Auschwitz, he had also taken Auschwitz, and together we looked over the pictures, it was there. I don't know. All I know now is that it was the indifference that gave the context for the hate. And therefore I know that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And therefore I know that we are living now in dangerous times. We live in dangerous times because we are indifferent to our own fate now. We are indifferent to so many small tragedies that the indifference is not a sin anymore, it's a punishment. Do we think of Afghanistan and its imprisoned state, or of Poland and its fate? Do we think about the dissidents who in the hundreds and the refuseniks who in the thousands fill the jails in Russia? Do we think about the Cambodians? I must tell you, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to think that the representative of Paul Pot, who was a maniac, who was a barbarian, he had trained his youngsters. I have seen them. I went to Cambodia. He has trained them to kill, and he has killed three million of his people, half of his people. And he is still represented legally, officially, in the United Nations. And we recognize him. Do you know that Khomeini, this maniac, has embarked upon a policy to kill the Baha'i? The Baha'i is a Muslim religion, not political. And he has already killed hundreds of them. And he will continue to kill them unless we do something. Are we aware of the fact that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of children who die every day simply because they are hungry in Africa and Asia? We live in such a great, marvelous democracy. And it's, it's really beautiful that we stop at 12 o'clock to think about serious things. But then we go back to our work. And thousands and thousands of miles away, while we work, and while we go on with our routine, thousands of children routinely die. With what we throw out in the restaurants, we could feed the whole continent. Oh, it's not hate, we don't hate them. But we are indifferent to them. I'm afraid that this indifference may lead to a world catastrophe. If I'm, I don't sleep nights. 
because I see the children today. We have wagered on hope and we brought children into this world. And I feel sorry for these children. I feel sorry for my students and their friends. They are beautiful, they are generous, they are compassionate. And I think that because of us that we couldn't communicate a certain message of warning, we couldn't pull the alarm, we may all cease to be. I believe that only if we remember can we save humanity. And therefore I'm involved in remembering. Not enough. I have written many books, not 15, I'm embarrassed to tell you, 25. And they don't deal with this event, only four deal with this event. I cannot write about it more, more than that. I don't want it to become a routine. I still believe it's a sacred subject, so sacred that it is fraught with destiny and it may save us. Will it? May I conclude, since I began with the Bible, with one more biblical example. I love, I love scripture. Do you remember Noah? Remember that Noah was a survivor of the floods, which means mankind was destroyed, except for a few. Noah and his family, and a few animals here and there. And then, lo and behold, a good thing happens. God promises Noah. He says, I promise you never to do it again. And when you read it, you are uplifted. It will never happen again. Mankind cannot be destroyed. But then read it again. And you will see that the promise is a very reserved and guarded promise. God says, I will never destroy the world again by water. And what about fire? Furthermore, God says, I will not destroy the world again. But he didn't say that you, men, will not destroy the world again. My friends, let's study and let's do something, anything, to make God's promise binding him and us for his sake and ours. have spoken from your heart to our hearts, from your mind to our minds, and we thank you. And we're glad that we have a little more time together before our hour is up. This program is originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, and our speaker for this past half hour has been Elie Wiesel, who is a survivor of the Holocaust and a chronicler of it and one who has shared with us very profoundly in these minutes together. We will turn to a question period now, and, and, and because it always takes a little time to get organized along those lines, I'd like to, uh, to uh, quote something that you said in another context and, and ask you to elaborate, and then we'll draw on the group's questions. Somewhere you said, because the child I used to be still lives somewhere, I'm looking to find the child, and I write to find the child. And then I'm, I'm reminded that you have a son, 11 years old, and had some feelings about that when you knew you were going to become a father. Would you be willing to talk about the whole <coughs> child idea as, as you live today? Well, I always loved children. I still do, uh, for many reasons. As a teacher, as a writer, I loved children. Furthermore, as a Jew, I love children. We have lost a million and a half children. And 
for many years I couldn't see a child, any child, without thinking of those children. And because of that, yes, I must tell you, I hesitated for many, 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 many years whether one should build a home in such an insecure world and bring life into a society which does not deserve such trust. What made me change? Well, personal reasons always, but then you rationalize them. Uh, I mean the rationalization comes afterwards. When I said to myself, who am I to say that it is me who will stop a chain in Jewish history. It started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and went through David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Besht and Luri and so many great names and great men and women and I am their descendant. It should all stop with me. I have no right to make that decision. But that was the rationalization. <laughs> One of the members of our staff, thinking along those lines, wondered what, what single most important thought would you like your son to incorporate into his life? You know, my son bears the name of my father. And I have the name of my father, and my father had the name of his father. So I want him to remember that, that he is really in the line of, of memory. And the key word to me, and I hope to him, is memory. But this memory should be <coughs> of a humanizing effect, not of a dehumanizing effect. On one hand, you take a child, 11 years old, or 20 years old, and you speak to him or her of so much suffering and defiance and uh, upheavals in our memory, it could numb us. I would do the opposite. I would tell stories to make numb people forget their numbness. Memory to me must sensitize people sensitize people to their own fate and to the fate of all others. I am aware that all of your writing is not focused on the Holocaust and that indeed you turned and reverted to Hasidic literature and all of that. Would you care to elaborate on that uh, move in that direction? <laughs> I've always been a student, I love study, I never stopped studying. Even during the war, uh, I, came, I came to the war um, literally from, from the Talmud. I was so pious when I was a child and I was so immersed in my religious studies that I neglected my secular studies. What we would do, we would cheat, just like students do today, but differently. How would I cheat? Uh, a month before the exams, I would then devote all my days to study for the exams, and then I would study Latin and math and geography and so forth, and I would pass the exam and forget it right away, as most of my students do now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but my passion really was religious studies, the Talmud, mainly the Talmud, and in the camp, I had as a co-worker a um, man who used to be the head of a famous Talmudic academy. And we would study together by heart from morning to evening while working. So I never interrupted study. And after the war, even when I had some religious crisis, and I did, and I speak about it in some of my books, even that did not interrupt my studies. And because I study, I share, and because I share, I teach, and I learn more from my students than they learn from me. It's true. I'm quoting a Talmudic saying, but it's true. 
And therefore, I have written on the Bible, and I have written on Hasidism, and I have written on, on, on the Talmud and the Midrash, and I have written on Soviet Jews because it's a current tragedy, and I have written on Cambodia because it's a t current tragedy. And I try really to, to cover all the genres in literature. At the same time, I try to be concerned with all the events that affect my life today. This is a question from the gathered group. In night, you seem to be describing the loss of faith in God in your life. Uh, do you have faith in God today? This is a very personal question, and uh, I must simply rephrase the question if you, with your permission. I did not speak of loss. I spoke of anger. I spoke with anger and I do not regret it. I still have anger, not hate. I never had hate. It would have been so stupid to reduce such, such an event to hate or to vengeance or to bloodshed. It's silly. The event is, goes much farther than that. It goes beyond all that. But anger, yes, I was angry, but I believe as a Jew, and maybe it's true of you as well, that a Jew can be a good Jew with God and against God, but not without God. This is a question that has just come from the audience. My 15-year-old son says he wishes he were very old so it wouldn't be so hard to die in a nuclear war. What can we concretely do to bridge the gap with the Russians? Can we do that in light of their human rights policy? Oof. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... it's, uh, it's I must tell you, it's, 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 it, it frightens me. Because it, it, uh, uh, we should cry that a 15-year-old child should even think in those terms. But really, what kind of world is this? That children today should speak as old men. I have known children who were old. I have known 8- or 10-year-old children who were older than my older teachers. But I want that generation of children to stop with them. I want 15-year-old children today to play with computers and to speak about candy bars and not about atomic annihilation. On the other hand, we must make them aware and therefore I'm glad that he asked that question. What can we do? First of all, create an awareness. The danger is of such magnitude that it warrants an awareness, an awareness without precedent in our history. And therefore it warrants and demands something more than we have ever done before. Maybe, I don't know, to proclaim a, a, a one-week hunger strike for the whole world, not simply a, f a, few, a few groups. The whole world on both sides of the Iron Curtain. It must be done on both sides, because if not, it means nothing. I have faith, in spite of everything, that the young people in Russia will somehow manage to respond to our appeal, and they will do there what we are doing here, to create that awareness. And my faith is not misplaced. After all, I have seen it. I was in Russia. I, I, I tried to establish already almost uh, 20 years ago the, the, the first groups of study, of defiance. If anyone had told me when I was there for the first time that I will see thousands and thousands of youngsters walk in the street and claim their allegiance to the Jewish people, and hundreds of dissidents, non-Jewish, who will be free inside Russia, I wouldn't have believed it, but they are. 
most of these people who are involved with human rights in Russia are also anti-nuclear activists, which is normal. And I hope that if we are strong enough and honest enough and sincere enough in our endeavor, we will help them do the same. I know it requires a miracle, but I must believe that when all hope seems lost, we must invent a new one. Another question. The biblical literature seems to give three answers to the existential question, why me? They are, God is punishing me, God is testing me, God is not powerful enough to prevent suffering from coming to me. Have you answered the why me question? Has the Bible helped you deal with this question? I accept the question, but not the answers. <laughs> I, I, I usually like questions. Um, the third option really is not a biblical option. It's not a religious option. Either God is God, or uh, if he is not powerful enough, then he should get another name. <laughs> <laughs> there is a kind of, there is an attempt in mysticism to speak not of God's powerlessness, but of God's retraction, that God chooses to withdraw. We call it the eclipse, the hesterpanim, the eclipse of God, that God withdraws from creation in order to allow it to unfold. But that's not tantamount to, uh, to powerlessness. Punishing or trial, logically and normally, in normal circumstances, I would accept the options but I cannot accept these options relev as relevant, not to me personally, I don't count in that, in that way, but to my people. I cannot accept that there was a trial or a punishment for six million Jews. I cannot, and I refuse. Right. In that Vain, do you, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Rabbi Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Have you any comment on that book? I respect his opinion. I respect really all opinions if they are tolerant and open. And of course, it's a human, it's a human uh, attempt, which, is, 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 uh, which I, I cannot but respect. The question of why bad things happen to good people is not new. The Talmud has dealt with it all the time. We call it the theodicy. Tzadik veralo rashavet tovlo. Why is it that the just man suffers and the wicked does not? In Job, the whole book of Job is full of it. Or Jeremiah is full of it. Uh, I am used, I live almost in that climate of that question. But you know, in the Talmud we have so many options, and I choose all options for different times. When I am angry, I do not use my own words, I use the Talmudic words, or Jeremiah's words. When Jeremiah says, Tzadikata, you are just, says Jeremiah to God, but Kiarivimcha, I want to argue with you, and I want to quarrel with you. Or when in the Talmud we have an extraordinary passage during the era of the martyrs in the Roman times. There was a man named Chutzpit Hameturgeman. He was known as the, the interpreter. He was the best speaker in the country. And when the Romans persecuted the Jews for their faith, they cut his tongue out. And one sage has seen his tongue in dust. And he cried out and he said, Master of the universe, is this the reward for Torah? Is this the reward for learning? And then it is with anger that a sage said, how can you allow this to happen, Master of the universe? Mika mochaba ileimim adoshem is it in Hebrew. You are mute, said the sage to God because you see what is happening to your people and you keep silent. Now what does it mean? 
that one may protest, one may be angry, provided it is from within faith, not outside faith, and provided it is for one's fellow human being, and not against one's fellow human being. These are my options, and I prefer them. Question from the group. In view of your topic, hate, should ex-Nazis be hunted and pro persecuted or prosecuted? Prosecuted. <coughs> ex-Nazis or killers, should they be prosecuted? Yes. I am not for hate. Accept my testimony that when we came out of the war, there was no hate in us. There's a gentleman here whom I have seen just before we came in, and he was in the 6th Armored Division of, of Patton's 3rd Army who liberated Buchenwald. I was there on April the 11th. He may testify to you that when they came in, we could have taken guns and gone into Weimar and killed. We didn't. What we did, we assembled and we prayed and we said courage, the prayer for the dead. There was no hate. We instinctively realized that that is not the answer. But I want the killers to be prosecuted for a different reason, for justice. They must be brought before a court of justice, and that's all, for the sake of history, because if there is a trial, then the witnesses come forth, and they speak, and that becomes part of history. Afterwards, whatever happens to them, really, I, it's for the judge to speak, not for me. I, I, it's really. But the trial must take place. And also, I must tell you that somehow in me, I feel that it hurts to think that a Mengele could live happily somewhere in Paraguay and laugh at us for remembering. Question, what was President uh, Mitterrand's answer to your proposal for a symposium of leading thinkers on why we hate? You know, presidents have power. <laughs> and uh, he accepted right away. He announced it publicly. And we are going to have an international summit conference on anti-Semitism and hate, um, April 1985 to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the liberation of the death camps. And we will have it in Paris at the Sorbonne and the Palais de Chaillot, it will last the whole week. We will have around 400 participants. And we hope that at the end, a manifesto against hate would be adopted. And uh, at the closing ceremony, some 30 or 40 heads of state would be invited to come and sign that manifesto. <laughs> 